Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Daniel Strain, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee Anderson. Hello. Uh, Lee, thank you for joining us today, and um, today we're going to be talking about art as spiritual practice, and whether you're an artist or not, there's going to be something in this for you. Um, uh, before we get on to our topic, though, let me just say thanks to uh, Jay Forrest. Um, those of you who have listened to the program for a while know that Jay Forrest is our uh, has been a co-host for a while. He's uh, been the education director at the Spiritual Naturalist Society, and he's also been the technical director of the podcast program. Well, he stepped down recently to work on some of his own projects. Uh, he needed some time for that. And uh, we are very happy that he was with us, and uh, he really contributed a lot. We're going to miss him. Uh, but we wish him well on his projects, and we'll be putting out announcements about them as they come out in our newsletter. If you're a member of the Spiritual Naturalist Society, you'll get that newsletter. Uh, but anyway, I thought it was fitting just to give a farewell and a thanks to Jay. Uh, really appreciate his contributions and look forward to everything he's going to be doing in the future. So uh, back to our program for today, Art as Spiritual Practice. Now, I, I'm an artist. Uh, I come from a family of artists, and my brother and my father are artists. Uh, uh, my mother even uh, was a very good illustrator, but she didn't actually do it. She just sort of uh, did it on the side. And I feel like a lot of experiences as an artist have helped me to understand some of the concepts in spiritual practice, um, or at least I see it through that lens. And so we can talk about that a little bit today. And Lee also... Uh, practices a lot of different arts. Um, Lee, you were telling me earlier about the, the things that you do. You want to talk about that? Yeah, and I, I practice art like as an amateur, but in that same spiritual aspect, it's like it's something that it has to come through. So like you were talking about your mother uh, being an illustrator and everything, but she didn't do it professionally. I, I kind of do that. And throughout my life, I've seen that at different times in my life, no matter what's going on, I have to somehow practice some kind of creative or artistic endeavor to, you know, get out that emotion and kind of, you know, work out what's going on in my life with me. That's interesting. So um, as you do these arts and it, helps you figure out what's going on in your life. What is that connection there? So you're working on a, a painting or something like that, and, and somehow this does something in your life that's larger than just the painting. Yeah, what I've seen is, I mean, even in my own spirituality, um, as it grows, you know, things grow. And you have a hard time putting things into words sometimes. And so it seems to me that it will come out in artistic endeavors. I like to draw 
and um, not specifically paint, but it, it's really come to light lately that uh, all through my life, I see that things must be in balance. Um, you know, where there's good, there's got to be some bad. Where there's bad, there's got to be some good. And all of that comes out in my artwork, but it didn't become apparent to me until recently. What I like to do is um, use like a carbon black ink to draw things. And that makes a very permanent, you know, um, unrelenting line. But I fill that in with watercolors, which are, you know, very fluid and very changeable and everything. And, and so it's kind of like that's a balance. But I remember growing up and reading the Raggedy Ann books, but what I liked about them was Johnny Gruel's paintings, his watercolor paintings that he did in them. And it seems to me all through my life, you know, I've kind of liked that where I've got a hard line aspect and then a really soft muted colors, you know, that go with it. And that just kind of fits my whole spiritual perspective too, where especially with spiritual naturalism, I see a balance between like science, the hard line of science, and then the aspect of awe that is, you know, that kind of mutable, malleable type thing, but they have to be blended together, you know. So that's what I see in art. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, what kind of art do you do? You said you, you mentioned the painting uh, with the lines and the watercolor. Are there other forms of art that you do or is that your well, primary? Well, I, I like to draw um, and basically even, uh, it's funny, I try to be an organized person and do, you know, planning and everything. And so uh, you and I have talked about how, you know, you like to have your planner and have everything in there. I kind of like to do the thing, th same thing, but I like artwork around mine too. I can't just have, you know, the hard lines of the tasks that I've got to do. I've, I've got to have some artwork in there too, you know, to mm. uh, kind of reflect that little balance there. Um, I like to create things, especially it, since I live out in the urban area, I'm trying to learn to craft things, physically craft things with my hand that blend in with the environment like that too. Mm. So uh, I mentioned before that uh, this is going to be a program that even non-artists will find beneficial. And I think there's two reasons for that. Um, one, later we can talk about uh, ways of using art in your spiritual practice where it is the art of others and uh, incorporating appreciation of that art. That's one element. But then there's another element that's very important to understand, I think, it, which is when, when you use art as a spiritual practice, it's not about the final product. In our consumerist sort of uh, society, everybody, you know, I can't tell you how many times um, 
I would get questions when people would see me doing art, like, oh, you should sell that, or you should become a rich and famous artist. You know, it's all about how can you monetize this? Or, And even when you're not talking about money, we tend to look at art as like, we get obsessed about what is that final product you have produced for the good of society. You know, it's like this, this, you know, thing. And so if you feel like if you can't even draw a stick figure, well, art's not for me. But art as a spiritual practice is about the experience of doing the art. It's not about how good or bad it looks to anyone else. It's not about how, uh, how skilled you are at replicating an image you see before you in exact detail or perfect proportion or realistic look. Those are interesting skills and those are really cool skills and they're fun to watch other people do them and everything. But that is really a separate thing. What anyone can do, and it's really unfortunate because a lot, every, all children start out doing art. They're always doing, everybody does art yes. as, a, as a kid. And then as people grow up, some people get the idea in their head, that's not for me anymore. You know, I'm not an artist and they just kind of let it go. And it's, it's really kind of sad. Everyone, anyone can enjoy and do art and get something out of it. Um, in, in the Spiritual Naturalist Society, we talked about spiritual practices before and rituals and things like that, and they are always experiential. They're always about how does that experience help you practice being in a different state of mind or allow you to still your mind, uh, let you kind of play around on the emotional side of your mind instead of the analytical side, which we're often drawn to be in because of modern society. We have to do things and you know, fill up the gas tank and go to work and file the files. And you, you know, so we're always in that analytical side. So it allows you to get into your creative side, uh, loosen up, draw some connections. Um, and that, you know, that's very important for everybody. So art can be a, a tool for that. And so that's, that's the second part, which I think is even the deeper part of why um, today's program is for everybody. Um, a while back, I did a, uh, a program for a lo the local group here I was, I was putting together, and uh, we went out to the park. Um, this was a few years ago now, but I still have my notes from that program, and I'll probably return to this again sometime. But that program was drawing as spiritual practice. Now, we're talking about all the arts today, but in this case, it was drawing. And what we did was we went out to the, um, the park, and we had our little tablets and our pencil, and uh, we did a series of exercises. And so the first exercise was quieting the mind. Um, and this is kind of like a, a focused animal. If you look at the way animals uh, go, you know, especially like a hunter or something like that, they are, there's this direct connection between their senses and their actions. It's like a flow. Right. They're not thinking about what do I look like to other cats or what do I, you know, they're not worried about their self-consciousness or anything like that. There's just this direct flow between their environment their perception and their reaction. And so quieting the mind, ruminations are a source of anguish. Um, often these ruminations that go on in our head, this wheels turning. Um, now meditation helps at, at getting a still mind. 
But in this lesson, um, we just, we didn't even draw in this first lesson. We just quieted our mind and tried to observe our surroundings around us. The park was a real pretty place. It had trees and all that, you know, but you can do it anywhere. Observe without thought. And we spent two minutes just observing the details around us, the light reflecting off of things, the particles in the air, the flow of the wind, the movement of the trees, observing without thinking, without judging, like, oh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Ooh, that's gross. Oh, that's pretty. You know, <laughs> without trying to label things, you know, just observing, just taking it in without, without language. That was the first lesson. Um, and then there were a series of other lessons. The, ne the next one was observation and concentration as meditation. So uh, here again, it was about the, the experience, not the final product. And, and for an example of this, you could look at like sand castles and ice sculptures. We, 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 everybody loves to see these great sand sculptures and, and ice sculptures that people do, but we all know that those things are going to be gone. They do not stick around, but yet yeah. we do. And why do we do them? It's the experience. And that's just like the Tibetan sand mandalas. Um, they do those, uh, for those that don't know, um, they take these different colored, the, the, the Tibetan monks, one of their practices, they take these different colored sands and they pour them very carefully in these big intricate patterns to make these big circular mandalas on this table. And it's just beautiful, amazing work, but it's all just sand sitting on a table. And at the end of that, they rake it all back into the, the container and um, it's gone. And that, that experience for them was a way to um, come into uh, a deeper perception of impermanence and the nature of impermanence and not getting attached. Um, so there's a lesson on that. Um, we, and for that lesson, we, we quickly drew something, you know, and then we destroyed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that brings up the artistic form of photography too. And a lot of times, especially in this day and age with social media, people get caught up in photographing everything. And just recently, I try to take a walk every morning right around sunrise, you know, and I try and be involved, you know, in the moment and watch what's going on. But one specific day, um, I noticed the sun coming up through the pine trees and it wasn't at the top uh, yet but it was just right there at the point that it looked like the sun was coming through in the middle of the forest and I took a picture and the picture turned out you know really well for that specific moment but it gave me something for those things that fade away that in the future I can look back and think about you know, yeah, this happens every morning and every morning it's something special. And the reason I know that it's so special is because I take note of it every day, but every once in a while, maybe get a photograph just to, you know, get me to remember. And for those people that aren't artistic, you know, I think photography 
um, using that as some kind of a contemplative mode of art is uh, a good way to practice spiritualism too. That is a great point um, because you know photography is not just going around snapping pictures randomly. There's this there's this paying attention to things that you need this this creativity in the in the composition and the form and the light and the and you there's a lot to that it's the same kinds of things that artists do uh i should say visual artists uh do that photographers do um which is why it's very much an art and very much uh you know useful as a as a spiritual practice too i i totally agree that was that was a really good point i hadn't thought to bring up uh, photography um, and then, you know, of course, there's uh, music and things like that. We're going to do a future episode on uh, drumming and uh, maybe some other touch on some other aspects of music and spiritual practice, too. But, um, yeah, it, it trains you, whether it's photography, visual art, whatever, it trains you to be more mindful and aware of your surroundings. And that that translates from not just the visual, but uh everything in life so everything we talked about touches on aspects of spirituality the appreciation of beauty and awe the quieting the mind the concentration the awareness the mindfulness um and then yeah and i, I think those exercises uh really help us there was another exercise we did um in the park which was uh Consumption, conceptions prevent perceptions. So like one of the things I noticed in the past is that uh, when you watch little kids draw things, uh, a little child will draw a table, like a square table with four legs. Very often, um, very young children will draw, they're drawing a side view, but they'll draw the square of the top of the table as a full square. And then they'll put lines down to be the, the table legs. So in other words, they're not drawing what they actually see there because if what you actually see is a foreshortened square, a square that's, you know, more like a trapezoid or, you know, it's, it's laying down, it's at an angle, but they knew intellectually, they knew that the table shape was square. So instead of, instead of drawing what their eyes saw, they drew what they thought was the truth. And that's an example. And we do that, you know, all the time, um, even in life, even things that aren't visual, we, we don't go off of what we actually know or what we actually see, but we, our preconceptions get in the way of our perceptions. That's yeah. true. Um, you know, I've taken, I'm not an artist, but I've taken some art classes. And one of the first things they'll do to get you out of that perception is to make you draw things upside down. Mm -hmm. So yep. that, you know, you're, you're getting out of the, this is what I remember it's supposed to look like. And basically just <laughs> looking at it and drawing it, you know, upside down, just draw the lines like that. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a perfect example. The uh, and and drawing upside down does help. It's a really neat exercise. It 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 allows you to do that. But 
it's interesting to note how that applies to everything in life, not just drawing. It's like, um, it gets you used to like listening and trusting your intuition a little more and paying attention rather than prejudging. Uh, here's another example of how people do that. Most people who are not, you know, uh, you know, experienced life artists or whatever, when they draw a face, they'll draw the head and then the face will take up the majority of the head space. Um, and in reality, uh, if you look at the actual lines and the measurements, when you draw a face, imagine an oval shape of a face looking straight on. Mm -hmm. You've got this oval shape for the head. You're supposed to draw a, a guideline right in the middle, horizontally in the middle, but equally distant from the top to the bottom. That is where the eyes are. And then the nose is equal, the bottom of the nose is equal distant between the eyes and the chin. And then the mouth is lower than that. So most of the face is in the lower half of that oval because we've got our whole skull, our brain and all the <laughs> forehead and hair and all going on up there. But what happens is that we are, uh, we have these biological uh, instincts and it causes us to look for faces that's why you see faces in the clouds and things and to emphasize those. And we think about those more because faces are important to us to pay attention to and see what the expression is. Are the teeth going to bite us or is it, you know, so we, we are mentally, we focus on that and it creates this filter on reality. So when we go to draw a face, we make the face, the big whole thing. It's not really like that. And that's a great lesson because that's what happens in our life too a lot of our perceptions about the world are uh, filtered by the lizard brain, by ancient drives and ancient, uh, you know, you could say the ego. Um, it, it filters our perception of reality. And so a big part of spiritual practice is trying to get beyond that, trying to escape outside of those filters that you're, that your personhood, your, your ego places on the world. And um, so that's why I think that, that those kind of visual exercises are great uh, uh, analogy. It's not just an analogy, but it's a particular type of way that that happens. I agree with that completely. It's, it's funny that when you brought that up, it, it was suddenly, you know, came to me that what we look at on the face are basically the moving parts, whereas the <laughs> head is not a moving part, mm. you know, so we're, we're focusing on what gets the attention. And that's just like society today, you know, the mm. loudest voice, the moving parts, that's what gets the attention. And the salacious headline. Yeah. Right, right. You don't stop to look at what's going on behind that. You just see what's there on the surface, what's in front of you, and you don't stop to look at the whole picture. Yeah, that's that's a great example because um, like I said, in the media, uh, the, the things that get picked up are the things that are most unusual, that are most uh, attention grabbing, and they pick it up for that purpose, sensational. And what that does is it inverses your sense of proportionality about what's really going on in the world. Because exactly. nobody's going to report the plane landed safely. They're only going to report the plane crash. So 
in your mind, if all, if your impression comes from all of these things coming at you through social media and the news and all that, the overall balance of what happens and how often it happens is all distorted. Um, and so, yeah, it's exactly the same as the face thing. Yes. Uh, judgments prevent understanding. That was the next lesson we did. And so positive, negative judgments get in the way of pure understanding. So our lesson for that one was to uh, find something upsetting in the forest there, in the, in the park, and draw that, and try to focus only on the visual aspects of it. So, you know, somebody would find a, a gross-looking bug or a piece of trash where you would normally say, oh, that's so terrible, somebody littered in the, in the park, and try to draw it and see it for it without placing judgments on it and you start getting into the intricate details of the drawing and you start seeing that it has interesting forms to it and all of that exists uh, apart from the judgment about this is pretty this is ugly this is good this is bad and that's another exercise to allow us to try to see beyond the the, the filter that our ego puts on reality Sometimes we make judgments about other people because of these categories that we drop them into and we oversimplify them and turn them into a cartoon when we do that. Well, and you make a lot of uh, times people make judgments about other people because of things that are cosmetic and we're talking about art here. So, you know, mm. art has to do mm -hmm. with colors and things like how you adorn yourself, maybe tattoos, you know, things like that. Um, and, and that's what you were saying too. People make judgments because of things like that without, you know, <laughs> really looking at, again, you know, what's the basis, what's behind it. And, you know, the universe has a beauty to it regardless. And I'm not just talking about sunsets or, um, pretty lakes or things like that. What I mean is there's a beauty to the activity of the cosmos, regardless of what's going on, whether it's an animal decaying and becoming something else. There's this beauty, there's this elemental beauty of the entire endeavor, the entire structure of mm -hmm. reality as these complex systems interact and dance with one another. And I was telling a friend one time, like, I drew up, I grew up, my dad was real into, uh, you know, the old 50s horror movies and sci-fi movies and stuff. So yes. we, we were big into that, you know, and growing up as an artist and as a little boy, you know, I, I'd like to draw monsters a lot or aliens. And what I learned over time was that, um, and I was very much into like special effects in movies. I'd watch all those documentaries about that and everything. What I learned over time is that the, the really convincing fictional animals were the ones that they they didn't think of it as a monster they thought of it as an animal and so i was telling a friend one time i was drawing this alien creature and it was kind of this reptilian humanoid creature and i said something about it being beautiful and he said that's not beautiful that's ugly and gross and weird and scary and all this stuff how could you call it beautiful and I was saying, well, you can't really design a convincing, you know, when you're trying to design these fictional aliens, you're trying to draw it in a way 
where it looks like something that could actually exist in the universe. And things that actually exist in the universe, things that evolve that are part of an ecosystem, they have a beauty to them. I mean, a, a, uh, a grub worm has a beauty to it. it there's, there's certain elegance and proportions in the lines. And if you don't have the ability to see that beauty, you're not going to be able to draw a convincing fictional animal. It's just going to look like some kind of grotesque blob thing, um, which is what the really early movies animals did look yes. like. If you look at the later ones like H.R. Uh, Geiger's Alien and uh, The Predator. They have these elegant lines in their jaw structures and they move in realistic ways and they flow and there's a dance and an art form to them. You have to be able to see that beauty to do that. Now, what, now of course, everybody doesn't have to draw monsters, but what I'm getting at is that uh, there is a beauty in life that is larger than ourselves and it's larger than our egotistical concerns and judgments about what's good or bad, what meets our goals, what, what, what conflicts with our goals, this, this overriding larger beauty and learning to tap into that, to see it, to appreciate it is part of this falling in love with the cosmos. And that's what's necessary. I think to help us transcend the ego, help us achieve non-attachment, help us to see the bigger picture. Yeah, on a on a smaller scale to that, coming from a city where I thought vultures were just the worst thing in the world, when I moved out here to the country, and I would see everywhere I would see vultures on the ground, I knew that there was a dead animal, so at first I thought, okay, well, that's just really gross and everything. I have so come to appreciate the fact that this one animal you know in in all of the world here was created specifically with the type of digestive system that it can actually take care of these dead animals which no other animal is going to touch you know, such that now when I see vultures and, and I make sure that I don't bother them when I go out there, but if vultures have taken care of an animal, all they leave are the bones, you know, and, and that leaves a clean environment. It doesn't leave things, you know, rotting out there where, you know, other types of insects and bugs and things can come and, you know, maybe start multiplying when they shouldn't be but it's part of the cosmos it's part of that balance and, and it's just incredible to think about you know how all these parts fit together and why things are like they are and everything and again it's just it's appreciating the beauty of everything everything has a reason yeah this is uh it's it's a wonderful point and it reminds me of how in in Taoism uh there's a uh a writer Tuang Tzu and uh I'm probably butchering the pronunciation but mm -hmm. uh he um is one of my favorite writers I really like reading a lot of his stuff and um one of the things that he, that Tuang Tzu talks about is uh um there's this tree, he tells a story of it, there's this person walking by and he, he sees, 
there's this big knotted tree and the tree is this real thick knotted wood and he walks by one day and the person who lives nearby is chopping it up chopping it down he said why did you chop down the tree he said well I had to get it out of here its wood was no good for anything I couldn't use it because it was all knotted and everything and so the tree was useless and he said well no the tree wasn't useless it was that you couldn't find a use for the tree. So the, the reality is something about you, not about the tree. <laughs> the tree had yeah. a use. And, um, you know, so there's that. And then there's also in Buddhism, it reminds me of, uh, there's a meditation in Buddhism where people meditate on decaying bodies. Um, not literally there, but in their minds, you know, they, they picture mm-hmm. them trying to meditate because they're trying to examine what sort of feelings arise in me in response to that and what is the reality of it you know very much like you said about the the vultures um you know what i've had you know loved ones pass away as most of us have um and uh you know when these things happen you're not going to get out of you know the pain or the missing the person you know there's no there's nothing you're going to do a spiritual practice and all of a sudden you're just walking around blissful all the time you know without any kind of human uh emotion or anything but uh these sorts of ideas um these sorts of perspectives really help us uh you know come to terms with with loss and with uh the flow of life and and being open to where life takes us um at least they have for me well and you know when you bring that up too and and getting it back to art too especially when things in your life happen you know like death or you know just kind of tragic things like that um art is always such that there is no complete definition of it. It is always defined by the person who's looking at it themselves. And so, you know, it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I know people that have gotten through, you know, death, not by talking to other people or maybe not even by contemplating things, but by observing you know, artwork or or things like that, whereas all through the centuries, people have put their feelings into paintings and it's not something you did yourself, but you can walk up and look at a painting and identify what Mm -hmm. somebody was feeling, you know, when they went through that and say, okay, I feel exactly the same way. So I know I'm not the only one going through this type of thing. And I think that's where, you know, uh, like arts that other people have created that, you know, we observe comes in also. Yeah. In art school, they, um, I I went to Sam Houston state. My, my major was uh, studio art. And one of the things we learned there was that the artist does the art, the piece of art, but the the art happens when the viewer comes and views the art and what yes. the viewer brings to the experience is as much part of that as the piece of art itself. And that's why it's different for everybody. Mona Lisa for me is not the same as Mona Lisa for you. Right. Different 
little mixture of experience that goes on there because of each of our individual baggage or baggage is a negative connotation, but uh, our experiences, right. past experiences and our personality and our perspectives. And so, you know, a lot of people have identified with like, oh, they go through a breakup and then they're listening to songs on the radio and they're just sort of indulging in these songs that like have similar feelings in it and they feel somehow comforted that there's others out there that are expressing these feelings and that's what I thought of when you said that with art but that's a great point you made about how it applies to the visual arts as well well yeah and and like you said music too so you know the the music the artwork the sculptures the hand creations and things like that there's some type of format and if I have a breakup I may be trying to listen to happy music whereas like you said somebody <laughs> else who has a breakup may want to hear just the sad breakup songs all the time and that's what's so good about art you can always find something that's going to fit with what you believe in or what you need at the moment yeah ultimately art is about communication just like language but yeah. what's interesting about it is that whether you're doing art or whether you're doing a practice where you're looking at art and trying to examine how does that make you feel, what do you, you know, what would you get out of this? Um, either way, you are either giving or receiving communication and it's a different way of communicating than analytical or language-based communication. And so I think it's a healthy exercise for the mind to be doing that. And when I think when we were away from that, you know, if, if we're, if we've lived our life and we were doing art in elementary school and then we never did it again because we felt like, Oh, it's silly or I'm, I'm too grown up for that now, or I'm not an artist. I could never do that because I can't even draw a stick figure. And so we've, we've put that art out of our, the arts out of our life like that. Um, I think if someone were to, try to reintegrate themselves back into something like that creative stuff they're going to find it very rewarding and they're going to be surprised at the rich ways that it enhances their lives i completely agree with that i when i was growing up my mother was you know artistic and creative and my father was not at least you know i thought he wasn't. And for those people who say, you know, I can't draw or, you know, I can't do anything else. What I finally realized with my father was he spent a lot of time outdoors. He loved to fish. He loved to do bird watching, you know, and things like that. Mm. And that was how his creative aspect, you know, came out he probably spent a lot of time contemplating a lot of things too you know yeah you see somebody sitting outside in a boat and you don't know what's going on they could be doing their taxes in their head or they could be having a, a aesthetic experience right. you know it's all only you know what your spiritual experience is and what that's doing for you it's a very first person subjective inner experiential kind of thing um, there's also, I mean, you mentioned earlier balance. I wanted to come back to that because balance is really great. Uh, you know, when you're doing a composition as an artist and, or a photographer or what have you, or even as a, a musician, there's a balance there going on. 
Um, that balance, another way to say that is like uh, kind of uh, seeing a bunch of interconnected components all at once, like a big picture, a big picture kind of view. Hmm. And one of the things uh, that, that, you know, artists learn is that um, you pick up a drawing. Okay, so <laughs> what the way I used to do it before I went to school, before I went to college, is I would start one corner of the page and I would be drawing at maximum detail. The little eyeball and the wrinkles are in the eye and then I go out to the uh, eyebrow and then I move down to the nose. Then I'd have the trees in the background and the little leaves on each branch. And, I, and slowly this completely completed picture would start gaining territory on the page <laughs> until it was done. And, you know, you can get good at that skill at doing that. But one of the things that helped me the most in my art was learning to back out. And we would do these things where, you know, in my life drawing class, we'd have the model up there and the professor would give us one minute to do the drawing. And we go, one minute? How the hell am I supposed to do that? And I'm doing it. And then, you know, Sometimes I think it was even less than a minute. And then we do a five minute, whatever. And he was saying it, it doesn't matter when I stop you, whatever, whenever I stop you, there should be a completed picture there. It's just that the level of detail of the picture might be more, or the level of refinement of the picture might be more if you have more and more time. And so what that taught me was that you start by looking at the overall composition. Because if you just start in one little corner and you at maximum detail, you move out there, you don't have the sense of proportion. Things get off. You don't have any control over what your composition really is going to end up being. And so he taught us to look at the big picture first, see the big picture and all of its components, get it on the page, uh, and then refine it as you go. And it was a completely different kind of way of working. But when I compare that to spirituality, what I see is a practice that lets you, um, that encourages you to think about the big picture and things, not get lost in the details. Like, oh man, my car, you know, broke down today. You know, <laughs> my whole life is a shambles. You know, that's a detail. It's not the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that's funny that you bring that up because I think that most children start that way and then we're all children, you know, as we go through our spiritual life also, but everybody starts out with the details and as you grow, you know, as things progress, you do have to learn to step back in everything and look at the big picture and not get mired in, you know, those details. Yeah. You know, have you, you've seen those things, they were real big for uh, a few years, uh, a decade or two ago, but you'd see them on all the malls and everything, but they're these pictures that are made with computers and they, when you first look at them, it just looks like a scrambled static, but if you stare at them just the right way and you allow your eyes to cross, this depth perception thing happens and a, right. and a picture emerges out of this. I don't know what these are called. Stereograms? Yeah, I don't know what they're called either. I remember those and also the pictures that 
look like one thing, but if you turn them upside down, there's something completely uh, different. Yeah. Or, or if you, you know, even step back and, and soften your perspective, it suddenly becomes something else too. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember those too. And um, all of those, to me, really feel a lot like what my experience in learning and reading philosophy has been like. You know, you, you read something and you think you understand it you know, at age 23 or something. Um, and then you have your judgments and opinions about it and everything. And then you come back to it a little later in life and you read it again and you realize it's not exactly saying what you thought it said. And then you read some other things and you got some life experiences thrown in there and you're kind of cross comparing these different things. And over time, this picture emerges. And when it emerges, it is it feels exactly like that sensation of when you're trying to get your eyes to cross on one of the stereograms and suddenly the picture emerges and you're like, oh, that's what it is. Well, that's what wisdom is like. That's what uh, life experience is like. And that's what the epiphany style kind of things we're trying to encourage in spirit in our spiritual practices are like they're like these moments of clarity these moments of glimpsing um some deeper truths about the world that help us to be more wise and move more uh in a flourishing way in the, in life and again those moments are different for different people. You know, I'll get a moment of clarity that's completely different from somebody else, but that becomes part of my truth and part of my spirituality right there, which is another reason that, you know, even though we have consistent, I guess, thought processes about how we go about finding these truths, the truths may be different for different people, you know, just depending upon what their experiences are and everything. Yeah. And, and because a lot of our audience are, you know, uh, naturalists, I would say most of them probably are naturalists and, and probably have a, a very, you know, modern scientific, uh, skeptical, analytical sort of view of the world. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's good to point out to them when we say different truths for different people, we're not talking about like, um, well, your truth is that, you know, there's nitrogen on Mars and mine is that there isn't, you know, we're not talking yeah. about objective that's, facts about the world. Right. That's the facts compared you know, to the or truth. my truth yeah. is that I have ESP powers and your truth is that ESP doesn't exist. You know, it's nothing right. like that. We're talking about the kinds of realizations in life that help us get along and be better people and that help us appreciate certain things about life. And, um, you know, one person looks at a painting and to them, the biggest thing is that there's these beautiful trees in it. Another one, the biggest thing about it is this, there's this wonderful contrast between dark and light. And those things are each productive and beneficial to those people at that time in their life. Another thing it says is that you can't force your experience into someone else's like a, like a peg in a hole. You can't transplant these things through brute force. Instead, it's more like 
um, planting seeds and seeing what flourishes and what grows in the garden, you know, and everybody is at a different point in their life and everybody's ready to hear certain things or not hear certain things or appreciate certain things in their life. And you kind of have to learn to elegantly go with the flow as you interact with others in the world and not be out there trying to like force your, your version of things right. in everybody's minds. That's, that's a very like, powerful thing. Yeah. I was going to say that's like two people that, you know, may even appear to have had like grown up the same way, had the same experiences and everything can read the same book and they'll both come away with completely different mm. uh, things that jumped out at them, you know, it's so vast and complex and intricate and interconnected that what emerges out of any complex system, whether it's a human mind or life or whatever, uh, is really uh, its own thing and it can't be predicted or controlled. Um, so, yeah, you know, there were these other lessons that we did. Uh, grasping the interconnected whole conclusion, and they were all just different ways of drawing um, and also in the conclusion of this, I, I made a note that these are not just analogies. Like we've been talking about, oh, this art is like when this happens intellectually. To me, these are not, I don't think these are just analogies. I think these are um, different manifestations of the same underlying truth about how things work in the universe. So, whether we're talking about visual data or uh, linguistic data or neural data, however you want to describe that, data is basically interconnectedness of cause and effect relationships in complex systems. And uh, in complex systems theory, there's this uh, realization that all these different kinds of complex systems have these same sorts of mathematical um, interrelationships to one another. And so to me, these things we've been talking about are just the, the example within the visual and audio uh, world of the same kind of underlying phenomenon about how the world works, how the universe works, how life works, how personalities work. And um, to me, the fact that that's not just an analogy, but you know, the same phenomenon we're talking about just in different contexts, to me, that's really fascinating and awe-inspiring and, uh, and uh, uh, moves me to want to find out more and explore it more and apply it in more different ways. I can't remember who exactly said it, but um, I've heard it before that what differentiates human beings from animals is that humans appreciate art and there's no reason you know for us to appreciate art for there to be art but <laughs> you know it's there and it's almost like it's a compulsion it's something we have to have you know and, well, you and that's about, very awe-inspiring to me yeah if you think about like uh what art is it's essentially uh creativity connecting things that aren't necessarily literally like uh, putting together things in unique and novel ways. And that I think is an important component in creativity, which is an important component in a why we were able to, you know, build a fire and then 
build a grass hut and build a space shuttle and, and do all these yeah. things because of that ability to take different disparate things, seemingly disparate things and, and put them together in novel ways. And I think art is just kind of like us practicing that ability for its own sake, you know? I think it's also an appreciation of beauty and beauty is different for everybody. You know, I mean, some people mm -hmm. like, like you said, may find the beauty in things that are decaying just because it's a system and the system is the same and it works the same. Whereas other people are going to be grossed out by it and things like that. But you know, it, it is that contemplation of what is beauty and how do I express that? Yeah. Beauty is a very, I mean, it's completely tangent to art, of course, and this concept of beauty. I mean, almost every major philosopher, when you go to study them, there'll be a section on their, their take on beauty. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. why are these philosophers talking about beauty all the time? Well, beauty is this interesting phenomenon because if a person finds something beautiful, it means that there's something about it that has captured their, their, attention and appreciation in a way that that indicates that there's something there that they're recognizing and so they've done these like studies on okay when when we study a bunch of pictures and people say this this person's beautiful and this person's not what are the mathematical characteristics that tend to be you know there's all kinds of ways to do that with different beautiful things and we usually find that there's some underlying uh, relationship or proportionality or phenomenon that's being recognized. And so there's probably a lot of different interesting and complex functions that go on when a person finds something beautiful. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to be a good surfer, for example, unless you find the ocean beautiful. I, I don't think a person is going to say, oh, I hate that nasty old salt water but i love surfing so i get out there and do it i just you know it seems like the the appreciation the beautiful aspect of it the finding beauty in it is part of what allows you to uh invest your 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 whole being into it and and uh coming to be skilled with it in a way yeah, I, I agree with that completely. It would have, to, I mean, you would have to find the ocean beautiful. Also, just the wind in your face, you know, mm -hmm. as you're surfing along and things like that. It, it's also the way that people find a commonality with each other in finding beauty in the same things like that, too. So spiritually, they can find, you know, the beauty in... Uh, you know, this type of sp spirituality and everything too. Wow. Really fascinating. So, um, I, you know, did you want to add anything else before we wrap up? No, I think we've, <laughs> I think we've covered the subject. I always think <laughs> of stuff later, of course, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'll go ahead and wrap us up then. Uh, thank you to our listeners for, uh, uh, tuning in today. And I, I hope you, you found something interesting in this and got some ideas from it. Um, I really loved this topic today and it's one that I've been wanting us to include on the program for some time. 
And uh, Lee, I really appreciate all your input on it. It's great points, great points. And uh, I enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, our podcast actually started because a lot of us here at the society had been having these wonderful conversations. We're like, oh, we got to record this, you know, so the other people would appreciate it. Too. So uh, if you do want to leave us a comment, we have all of our episodes on our homepage. Each, each episode has its own page. And so you can get on there and comment and we'll, we'll, we'd love to hear from you, whether there or on Facebook or, and uh, I'd ask you here at the, toward the end of the year, uh, we like to really uh, emphasize membership in the society. If you want to become a member of the spiritual natural society, you can be a part of our community. Um, we're going to be having a lot of special things. You'll be able to get the newsletter. Um, and if you want to become a sporting member, you can actually help contribute uh, to paying for our costs for things. And um, that's really important, too. So anyway, uh, let me uh, wrap us up then. I hope you will turn, tune in next time and check out our other episodes. Thank you for joining us. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemens Rood. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.